Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. This episode of Michigan Minds is part of a series produced by the University of Michigan Public Engagement and Impact Office and the Office of the Vice President for Research in celebration of International Day of Women and Girls in Science. This episode features Anna Kirkland, PhD, Arthur F. Thurno, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies, Director of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, with courtesy appointments in sociology, political science, and health management and policy. She details her research, outlines how scholars can impact change, and shares how she empowers others in STEM fields. I do research because I'm really curious about things, and there's a lot of things that we don't know. Um, I'm a social science researcher, so we have the whole world of human behavior, things that humans have created, organizations, politics, countries, laws, um, and these are enormously complex, and the ways that they work are often mysterious and surprising. And one thing I've always noticed about it that um, I, that I really think of almost every day is how how much humility you have to have in the social sciences, because pretty much whenever we look at a law or we look at a policy and we're trying to change the world, it's pretty much guaranteed not to go exactly the way you think. <laughs> and that's because there's so much complex stuff going on. Um, and so that's what I'm really interested in. How do we try to change the world with laws, policies, um, things we do in coordination with other people? And how does that work? How can we do that better? Um, when it goes wrong, why does it go wrong? I've done a lot of different projects, and each project has its own um, its own impetus. You know, you've got to come from um, a personal place. You know, and and I have actually turned down projects or decided not to pursue projects because either they were a little too close, a little too painful, or a little too you know I just don't I didn't care about it enough. So um, I always try to pick that special place of I have enough in personal investment in this uh, where I really care about you know, how this could matter to people, but it's not so close, so personal that I feel like I can't approach it as a researcher. I'm the director of the Institute for Research on Women and Gender, which is a research institute here on campus. We have 230 affiliated faculty members, so we really reach all the way across the campus. And what I try to do is find ways to curate experiences for researchers where they can come together and talk about ideas because this is what this is what faculty really want they want to come together and they want to talk about ideas and so much of our work is actually other things <laughs> you know like i'm spending a lot of my work work week today doing reports for grants and other kinds of things that are not about the research but i try to find ways to bring everyone together to think about you know um, sexual harassment in the sciences or transgender health rights or um, Black Lives Matter and its impact, these things that are really big issues that everyone cares about, um, but how do we actually get going on a research project or make progress or who needs a collaborator? Um, just kind of the, I think research is built on relationships and relationship building is a lot of what I try to do. I don't necessarily feel like I have a lot of big fancy research accomplishments moments, but when I look back at my career, I think about, you know, I wrote the first and to date only academic study of our vaccine injury compensation court. So thinking about how scientists and lawyers come together to solve or try to figure out what um, 
vaccine side effects might have actually caused problems. And it turns out that's really hard to do, and law and science have to work together on that. And I wrote that book before the COVID pandemic, but it sort of was, um, you know, I had a lot of insights later that I was able to share. So I, am, I remain proud of that. I've also done some uh, recent work trying to figure out how anti-discrimination rights uh, are being implemented in our hospitals and healthcare settings. We had um, some new laws and regulations about that. Um, and all the lawyers and politicians were saying this is gonna be really great. And I was kind of thinking like, there's a lot that's gonna stand in the way of this law really having the effects that we want it to have, uh, because we always know that law doesn't really transform in quite the ways that we expect. Um, I was like, I kind of think it's not gonna go that way, <laughs> but let's find out. So I've done the only study of looking at that implementation. You know, My RAs and I called 775 hospitals um, around the country to try to figure out what's going on. So, and that's what social scientists try to do. We do kind of systematic studies of the social world. And um, you know, sometimes we try to call it science, but we're gathering research about, empirical research about the world. It doesn't always look uh, like bench science or other things that the public associates with science. But those are some things that I'm proud of. We always hope that our research has an impact on policymakers. Um, and that's frankly pretty difficult because a lot of times what we have to say isn't what policymakers necessarily want to hear. Um, at least, especially in the social sciences, we are also often telling folks that things are a lot more complicated. Um, you know, so you can't just harangue people to get vaccines and shame them. You know, a lot of us knew that that was not going to go well. Um, and and actually, lots of times, public engagement or trying to influence is like watching a slow train wreck happening, where we know what's going to happen, and and we've we've tried to to say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it this way. And uh, politics, you know, the, the need to move quickly, you know, so often our research doesn't move as quickly as politicians and journalists want. You know, I, I get contacted by a journalist, they want my conclusions in two hours for something. And, um, you know, maybe I haven't even had a chance to see their email. So there is sometimes a big mismatch between the speed and pace of research and then what the policymakers and legislators want. I've written public commentary for things. I've submitted public comments on regulations. You know, I, I try to, to get in there and, and give my uh, scholarly perspective. Um, sometimes I feel like it gets listened to, but there are, there are a lot of structural barriers, you know, and social scientists are interested in studying structural barriers and how they work. So I'm never surprised, um, but it is really difficult to get our research conclusions through. The University of Michigan is really special because they're so, it's so huge, um, and, but the hugeness means there's plenty of people out there who don't know each other and who don't know about each other's research. And so um, it's easy to just reach out to people. People are enormously friendly. Maybe it's the Midwest, maybe it's the, um, that we're not an Ivy League school. I don't know, there, there's not a lot of ego getting in the way of, of people's collaboration. So it's pretty easy to just say, hey, can you talk to me about this? Or would you like to have coffee? Well, pre now it's Zoom, it used to be coffee. I'm hoping it'll be coffee again. You know, you wanna talk about this idea, let's, let's meet up. And people are open to that. So I've, I have collaborations going um, in Michigan Medicine now. Um, I've worked, with colleagues around LSA. I've got a new project where I've been put on a grant in engineering. So there's just lots of really great opportunities. And part of this is being driven by higher level research priorities. The funders 
have realized that you've got to have interdisciplinary connections. Uh, they don't want to see all male application groups. They don't want to see that you don't know any women in your research area. Um, and so I think people are doing a lot more reaching out. And we have networks here at Michigan, expert lists. And uh, you know, my research institute tries to be a place where if you need to find somebody, we can help connect you. Um, but I think we're getting real pressure backed, backed by money and, and new, new ideas about research and opening that up. Plus the environment here, the culture here is fairly relaxed and you know, fast paced and, and intense, but um, it's the kind of place where people can reach out about ideas. I think we do need more participation in women and girls in STEM fields. We actually are doing a pretty good job on that, on the pipeline. Younger girls love science. They're totally into it. We've gotten a lot of progress with getting women and girls into STEM fields over the years. And what we see is it's much harder to actually be a scientist and be in these STEM fields and have your career go well. So, um, you know, when I was on the National Academy's panel about sexual harassment in the STEM fields, we really tried to confront that and say, like, look, we've been getting women and girls excited about going into STEM fields for the past few decades and it's working, but then they're dropping out or they find that they come into an environment that's more hostile than, than they've been promised. If there's a little more, you know, the rah-rah stuff wears off and then you're in a lab and there's no other women and it's a toxic environment. So I think now we really need to turn to that, you know, making the STEM fields accessible and open and uh, friendly, nurturing, uh, where people, all people can thrive, especially women and girls. We know there are particular problems there. Um, so we, we've actually done a pretty good job on the early end of the pipeline, which is great. Um, but that turns out to be the easy part. I would tell women and girls interested in STEM careers or any, and this includes social science careers, and actually the, this is gender neutral advice. Um, you've got to be driven by curiosity. You have to have a lot of curiosity. Um, it's gonna get you through that program. It's a long, grueling process. I think people need to be really, um, really sanguine about what the career prospects are, You know what the job actually is. Um, and I always say this to people like, think about who do you work for? Do you work for a university? Do you work for industry? Who's your client? What do you do at work every day? And is that what you wanna do? And really think through that. <laughs> you know, What is that gonna look like on the ground? Um, you know, for 40 years of your life. Um, and, you know, people are always like, oh, you know, it's a bit of a downer to put it that way. Um, but I think that's that's the, the way to go into it is really understanding what what the career is like. And I think a lot of people, you know, it's a it's an elite profession with a PhD is a barrier to entry. And that's a big that's a big barrier to cross. And if someone doesn't have a whole lot of uh, resilience and curiosity and knowledge about how to navigate that is going to be hard. Our report for the National Academies was important because uh, there's just empirical evidence that there's a lot of harassment going on in STEM fields and academic medicine. Um, and actually academic medicine in all of the surveys that we found came out um, as the most hostile workplace. And really what some big things that we found were that there are still instances of what we classically imagine to be sexual harassment, uh, sort of grabbing overtly sexualized actions, but a lot of it is contempt and disrespect and thinking that women don't belong in these fields and communicating that to them in ways that exclude and push them out. And 
I think a lot of folks don't really think about that primarily when they think about sexual harassment, but it is, you know, negative workplace consequences based on gender. And a lot of that is, you know, name calling or derogation and not come ons and, um, you know, being asked for dates and things like that. So we found the impetus was just scandals. You know, there's always a few scandals will drive attention to the issue, but then there's a lot of social science research um, really showing the outlines of the problem and that it's fairly significant in STEM fields. Now, to be fair, the humanities and other fields are not that great on this either. Um, we happen to have uh, some organized funding and interest in the STEM fields because those are areas where, um, you know, our national security, you know, we, we need scientists. We need, we need scientists to, uh, our scientists are seen as publicly important. And if the supply of them uh, women, half the, the scientists are being cut off, um, then that's seen as publicly important. Um, I do want to say, though, that we know sexual harassment's everywhere in academia, not just the STEM fields. My work brings together a lot of fields in law, sociology, uh, health management, and policy. These are the courtesy appointments that I have. And perhaps I was a little too enthusiastic about trying to get courtesy appointments, and then I suddenly got all these. Um, but the way it drives me intellectually is that these these kinds of questions are all connected. Uh, we silo them in different fields and disciplines, but if you wanna think about something like vaccines and how people believe in them or have public trust in them, that relates to things about individuals and their beliefs about health, uh, but also the institutions that we have. have. Have people over decades maybe lost faith in our medical system because of the way that we fund and structure our medical care that, that humiliates and leaves people out? And, People know that and they remember that. And so if a doctor comes along, they may not necessarily trust what that doctor says. Um, so we really need a lot of disciplines to understand that. And uh, I was trained in an interdisciplinary sociolegal studies program. And so I bring that um, along with gender studies for um, a critical perspective on some of these things that really helps. I focused on transgender health rights uh, because it's been a long-standing interest of mine uh, because I'm interested in the way that law regulates gender and um, produces gendered performances, produces the way that we understand what gender is. Uh, and so in particular, when I learned that uh, when the Affordable Care Act passed, it contained an anti-discrimination clause that brought in sex discrimination to apply to healthcare settings for the first time, I thought, wow, you know, here we have, I'm you know, living in real time when law is trying to intervene uh, to, you know, to get people to be seen as their correct gender in healthcare settings and law is gonna try to make this happen in hospitals. And I thought, wow, you know, how are they gonna do that? Um, because if you just think about, and this is what I discovered in my research, you know, people were talking to me, I did interviews and they would say, look, we tried to go through everywhere that the hospital process, the inpatient process marks your gender and asks you to identify your gender. And it's, it's on the little stickers. It's on the, of course, it's in the electronic medical record, but it's on, we write something on the whiteboard above your head in your bed, how you want to be called. And the person who's bringing you your food has to maybe see that and greet you the right way. So there are all these ways, you know, where this recognition, and then of course the next question is, does the recognition bring justice? You know, what, what is the thing that you're trying to do or prevent the bad, the bad harm, the misgendering, the harassment? You know, does the law promote recognition in a way that stops the harm? And 
who in the organization is in charge of doing this and who is implementing this and what do they understand about what they're doing because it's all very complicated. There, we know that transgender people experience pretty significant uh, rates of, risk, of mistreatment and harassment in healthcare settings. And you know, there was getting to be pretty good data emerging on that phenomenon, although it's rather hard to measure in that group. Um, so here we had an emerging understanding of a pretty significant problem, a law that was set up to try to help it, but that I could see was going to be messed up and weird on a number of levels. Um, and this implementation that was going to be happening, you know, right? So um, I was able to write an NSF grant and get that funded to do that research. But um, and it was it it was it was based on a lot of things that I had been studying in my career over many years: um, civil rights, gender discrimination, um, transgender rights in the medical system. I had background on these things. So when this occurred, I was able to to get out there in front of it and get the proposal funded. I'm still working on all these data, uh, the, the Section 1557 implementation interviews. Um, you know, when you interview tons of people, you just have so much data where uh, the, the thing about qualitative research is you're often just swimming in data and trying to make your way through it and make sense of it is fairly challenging. So there's. Um, I've got to re return to that, get back into um, some of those interviews. I got to figure out things like, um, even though people are talking about rights in very confusing ways, what do they, what do rights, legal rights mean to them? Um, and I got to pull that out of the interviews and try to interpret that. As I've so far established the case in a couple of prior articles that a lot of folks aren't really thinking about this as a rights issue in the hospital. They're thinking of more of a patient experience problem to be rectified with kind of vague and often, um, you know, not very sincere apologies. And so, uh, but when they do think about rights, what do they think about? And then the big question that's looming that for me is sort of what should we do? Is this a bad way to implement a civil rights law in a hospital? Um, or do people like to just be apologized to and not have to hire a lawyer? <laughs> you know, I mean, that puts it very simply, but, um, what, how do rights improve health and do they improve health? That's kind of the, the big underlying question because um, folks thought, well, here we have discrimination that's harming people. There ought to be a law. Let's, ha you know, let's, let's have one. And I'm like, eh, how is that actually going to work? And so that's my big question. Do rights help us help make us healthier? Can they be used to improve the health of uh, marginalized people? What does it look like to try to do that? And when it doesn't go all that well, why is that? And uh, so I still have to find my way to the end of all those questions. I'd like to be remembered for people that I helped, people where I was able to try to make a path for them. Um, you know, and so I, I have a lot of conversations with people, younger people coming up, mentoring. Um, that's something that a lot of us do. You know, as a researcher, you really got to do a lot of mentoring um, and trying to make make ways for other people. I try to give away a lot of ideas. Like I have way more research ideas than I can possibly do myself. And so, um, you know, one thing, it's, it sounds corny, but it's really true. The more you give away, the more there is. And so um, I hope I'll be remembered for trying to give away as much of that energy as possible so that um, other people have had interesting careers alongside me. 
Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag UMichImpact.